Welcome to the Behind the Goals podcast, the podcast about fans, for fans and by fans. Please welcome your hosts, Andrew Jenkin and Alan Russell. Welcome to episode 37 of the Behind the Goals podcast. This week we're bringing you something slightly different, a recap of last Saturday's summit uh, that took place at Fur Park in Motherwell. The theme of the summit was supporter ownership at the top of our game and really a celebration of the fact that a quarter of the teams in the Scottish Premiership uh, are either supporter-owned or on the path towards becoming supporter-owned. Um, so that was a big theme. We had people from the three clubs, Motherwell, Hearts and St Mirren, along at the summit to speak. Uh, and we also had a, a range of other topics that we're going to bring you little sort of uh, recaps on throughout the podcast. We certainly are. Um yeah, so what we're going to do with this podcast is we're going to bring you some of the highlights from each of the, the three clubs that were, were speaking and uh, represented on the day. Uh, and then we're going to um, have one-to-one interviews with them, which were recorded on the day, and just a bit of a general chat. So hopefully you'll enjoy it. We're going to kick things off with our hosts on the day, who were excellent hosts, weren't they? Yeah, they were. Uh, well Society. Yeah, Well Society, almost two years into their uh, their ownership of the club. Um, well, until the, de- until the deal was first agreed, I think it was a little bit of time, as you'll you'll hear in the in the clip, uh, for it to be completely finalised. Uh, and last season was their, was their first full season as a supporter-owned club. Uh, and they've done pretty well in the two years since becoming supporter-owned. So uh, a real positive tone uh, in, their, in our discussions with them. Very much so. So here is Douglas Dickey and Maureen Kirkwood of the Well Society uh, and their presentation from Saturday. From then until now, uh, it began as a vision seven years ago uh, by our then owner, John Boyle, uh, 2011, who had the vision of fan ownership. He wanted to hand the club to the fans and the community. Uh, and, and in terms of where he was, uh, the, the, the rules to that were that we needed to raise £1.5 million as a war chest, uh, which he saw, why £1.5 million? That, that figure was decided upon. He thought that that was a figure, or we came to some conclusion that that was a figure that we would need to keep the club going effectively, as I say, as a backup. John... There was changes in ownership. Uh, John Boyle decided, we started on the journey, we formed the Well Society. Well Society is a, 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 a legal, separate legal entity. Uh, we started the journey in terms of trying to raise funds. In the interim, John decided uh, that he would like to give up his shareholding. Uh, we weren't in a position at that time to take over, obviously due to the early stages of the fan ownership in the Well Society. We couldn't do it at that point. Les Hutchison then came in, you'll all have heard of Les Hutchison. He then came in and helped the club at that stage, but continued to have the vision of the fan ownership. Les, we embarked on a five-year plan with Les effectively, still again looking to transfer ownership. Again, we, we were raising funds uh, slowly at the beginning, uh, and I'll touch on that later, but slowly at the beginning, the five-year plan quickly became a two-year plan. And effectively, Les saw him, Les is obviously was a benefactor to the club, 
and Les saw himself as perhaps a barrier uh, to us raising funds and the actual goal of the fan ownership. There was a perception, or there could be a perception, that while Les is still there, the club will always survive, he will always be there, there will always be somebody to step in and, and, and help the club. The decision was taken, at that point we were offered two years down the line of a five-year plan to take ownership. As I say, that, that, that hastened the process. Uh, it was quite a scary thought that we were willing to take that on board. Uh, we then entered into a lengthy negotiation in terms of doing your due diligence and really what we did was started by signing an MOU, a Memorandum of Understanding, which set the sort of ground rules of what the deal would be, basically. We had to find a deal that would suit both Les and both the society going forward. And whilst we took the club over effectively for a pound, we were actually taking all the liabilities of the club on board as well. So that, that, that was a real task and a real thought. However, uh, we managed, uh, as I say, the process probably took, from the MOU being signed, probably took about a year uh, of, of hard work, a lot of emails, a lot of legal meetings, a lot of documents, all to be signed by all parties, that is the club, the society, uh, the stakeholders at that time were John Boyle, Les Hutchison, and a couple of other minor, uh, minor interested parties. We are now the majority shareholder at the club. We are owners of the club, which is a, a fact that we are really, really proud of here at Motherwell. Uh, we have 76% ownership, uh, which, which is important. Uh, it allows us to have a major, major influence in the running of the club. We had, we, we were, sorry, at the time of the, 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 the ownership change, Tom and I were appointed to the main board of directors as well society representatives. It's interesting to note that all our main board directors are well society members. Uh, and in that respect, we are all batting for the same club, basically. We, we faced a lot of challenges. Sorry, I'll just go back. We have currently 2,600 members. Uh, we are raising uh, approximately £200,000 a year. We have raised, since we started seven years ago, we have raised almost £800,000. For a club of this size and a core support of 3,500 know, season ticket holders, we see that as a massive, massive achievement. We also look to succession plan. We talk about governance and as I say, a lot of the times when you go to run a football club, with the very best will in the world, you don't know what you don't know until you don't know you don't know it. Um, so with that in mind, we started looking at succession planning for our board as well. So although we have Tom and Douglas on our executive board, we actually would take in a Well Society board member every month to ensure that they have an idea of what's going on day to day over and above the reports that Tom and Douglas provide at our meetings. Um, and as I say, we realised when we set up our board structure that we had to be very agile in our approach. No one's done this before. We didn't have a rule book. We had a lot of help and support from SDS, from the wider football community. But at the end of the day, no one had done it before we had. So we had to kind of, as Douglas said, wing it. And as I say, Tom was very young and very dark haired at the time. Um, 
so yeah, but the rewards are there. You get to see the background of what goes on in the football club. You have a direct impact Absolutely. on what's what's happening. Um, it's planning ahead as well. Our strategic board, our supervisory board, which is almost like an oversight, we're looking at the medium and long term planning. As Douglas said, we under we had some liabilities that we had to pay off, and as part of our um, strategy for taking on board the ownership of the club, we had to look at the best way for us to be able to do that and set out plans for that. Our ongoing fundraising, that's one of our biggest challenges. We are our benefactors. We don't have, as none of us really do, a knight in shiny armour that's going to come charging up and say, there you go, there's however much money you want to have to run your club. Um, we're looking at engaging with our business communities. Um, we are a very much community-based club. We have our community trust, as Douglas touched upon, our academy and our club. We want to build that brand, but involve the local communities as well. And um, we've set up a business club. We meet every three months. I think one or two people from here have been along, um, and I'll circulate details of the next one. Um, and it's investing in the future. Everyone knows that Mallow needs to be able to sell players to be able to sustain it. Um, unless, of course, we continue our winning streak. It's, and, and, um, it's a business plan. I think, uh, again, not to, you know, a club like ours has got to have a business plan, and our business plan is bringing people through, bringing uh, and through the academy, through the young guys, developing the young guys, and if they move on, they move on. It's part of you know it's it's part of life and part of running a football club. So that was Douglas Dickey and Maureen Kirkwood of the Well Society, uh, with some highlights from their presentation on Saturday that they gave at the um, twenty eighteen uh, Scottish Football Supporters Summit. Yeah. What were your thoughts, Alan? What were the takeaway points? Yeah, the biggest one for me is um, one of the things that they spoke about, that every player of Motherwell is a member of the Well Society. Um, That struck me as well when I went along to Fir Park about six weeks ago to a business breakfast there. Um, They had members of the the local business community along, but uh, there was a presentation by Keith Lasley, and he was talking about uh, what it means for for Motherwell to be a community-owned club uh, and talked about every, every player as a member of the Well Society. Um, part of their their development as players is some education about the history of the club, history of the community, so they can really understand their, their fans. So they know why the club is called the Steel Men. Uh, they know the industrial history, which is, probably predates a lot of them being born, uh, and some of them maybe quite significantly. Um, so you know, a big part of, of them being a player at Motherwell is to be part of that community. Um, and that was... I, it was immensely powerful. I don't think there's there's anything greater that uh, a community-owned club can do uh, than to to help educate and develop their players. Some of them, some of whom have no no previous connection to the local area, mm. into what it really means to be part of that club. Mm. Well, and, and the fact that um, I think it was Douglas that said that all of, all of the board members are well society members as yeah. well. So you, you really get the impression that this is something from the very top. That goes all the way through yeah. the club, including the players. It's right in the identity of the club. Yeah, yeah, signed up to and something that they actually believe in. So it's not that's something right. they're sort of like, oh, we'll see how this goes. They believe in it and they they want to see it happen as well, which that's right. says a lot. And I, I bet there'd be so many trusts that would love to, to, yeah. to, to make that happen if they could get yeah. you know, people signed up to, to that model. Absolutely. And, and, and an extension of that was one of the um, one of the guests that came along on Saturday um Alison from the, a community cafe called the Windmill Cafe, um, which is near Fir Park. Uh, it's a social enterprise. Uh, its main purpose is to improve the employability of young people uh, from the local community. 
Um, and she was telling me that, that on a weekly basis there are players from Motherwell that come along to see the work that they're doing there, to meet the, the young, uh, young people that are working in the cafe, um, to get a cup of tea and a cake there. Uh, and to really, you know, you know, connect with that with that community. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a, there's a real strong community feel that goes all the way through that club um, as a as a result of becoming community owned, becoming fan owned, fan owned. So that's really positive. Yes, very much so. I think it, they, when they talk about they want to, they see themselves as being the cornerstone of the community. That really sort of shines through, doesn't it? Yeah, they're um, not just empty words. No, yeah. no, they sort of they're not just walking the. Walking, talking the talking talking the talk. They're, they're walking the talk. They're walking the, <laughs> they're talk, walking the talk as well as yeah. talking it. Exactly. <laughs> so um, you know, absolutely, very, very uh, admirable uh, or admirable, if you want to put, <laughs> put it that way. Um, presentation and and the work that they're doing. One thing that really also st- struck me as being uh, interesting was the fact that they were only two years into the five year journey towards fan ownership when um, they were handed the keys by Les Hutchinson and that was quite interesting because we talk about what are the kind of conditions that fan ownership comes about within clubs and they were saying that really whilst Les Hutchinson was there they couldn't really get traction as a movement or as a a campaign because people thought there's always a safe pair of hands Mm -hmm. there which is why they almost needed that sense of as long as I'm here people aren't going to be you know that's right uh, committed to this as an idea so that was really interesting the fact that they actively or Les Hutchinson actively stepped away and and gave them the keys two two years into a five-year deal yeah that's right and the way they're doing that deal is that uh, the liabilities to Les Hutchinson uh, will be paid back over that period of time uh, but they'll never put the club the club's financial stability at risk is being done through a, a share of transfer fees received. So um, their their business model is to develop players um, and to improve them and to sell them on, make money from that way. And it's only th- only a, pro- a split of the proceeds of those transfers uh, that will go to paying back those liabilities to, to Les Hutchinson. So it's a different way of doing things than we've perhaps seen in, at other clubs. Uh, it's not been so much about you know raising money to buy the shares. Uh, that was the easy part of it. Um, they were purchased for a pound, I think they said. They didn't need to take out any money for that. Yeah, but they did need they did need to to repay something like one point five million in, yeah. in liabilities, and and that's been that's been given some breathing space and some time for them to do that in a way that's that's manageable, achievable, uh, and they've chosen to do it in that way through. Uh, through you know, focusing on, on transfer fees rather than operating revenue, mm. if you which, like, which is a, which is a good way to do it. Yeah, because you know your success is uh, is determined by the products that you're producing. Yeah. So it's great for a club like Motherwell to be to be in that situation and to have a deal like that. I yeah, think. that's right. Um, so who do we have next up? Uh, we, next we had Foundation of Hearts. They spoke about the the journey they're on. They've been at our summits before. Um, we heard last year at the summit. Um, a, a great presentations from the Foundation of Hearts uh, and they also spoke at the Supporters Direct UK um, Summit at St George's down in where is that? Derbyshire? Derbyshire? Burton Stoke uh, it's near Stoke yeah. wherever that is down south somewhere, <laughs> yeah. But Foundation of Hearts went down there and spoke, uh, and they were a big draw at that summit. Uh, it was a really interesting story uh, when they were really sh- sharing the journey that they were on uh, whilst being in the in the top division in Scotland. That was something that was a bit of an eye opener, uh, I think, for people elsewhere in the UK. Yes. So here is Louise Strutt from Foundation of Hearts. Foundation of Hearts. What's our vision? To establish a well-run club which operates with integrity and transparency and encourages entertaining football from a team built around the players, produced by a thriving youth development programme. 
to have the club remain at its spiritual home of Tyne Castle, unless dictated by other prevailing circumstances, and then to ensure that the future of Heart of Midlothian Football Club remains secure for all time. Still makes the hairs on the back of my neck stand up, because back in 2013 there was not a chance that that was likely to happen under our previous owner. Thankfully, to five businessmen uh, in the local area, they had the foresight to pull together the Foundation of Heart, um, with a view to trying to take in over ownership from Vladimir Romanov. Um, in 2013, when we went into administration, we were joined by all of the Heart Supporters Groups, Federation of Heart Supporters Clubs, the Hearts, Heart Midlothian Shareholders Association, Heart Midlothian Supporters Trust, the Hearts Youth Development Committee, Save Our Hearts, and under the chairmanship of Ian Murray at the time, uh, the United Group worked together under the Foundation of Hearts banner to take forward the vision of fan ownership. I stood in the terraces of Tyne Castle since I was four years old. I'm 44 now, which I'm pleased to say. So, 40 odd years I've supported my club through thick and thin. And I stood on the terraces in 2013 when we played St Mirren. And Scott Wilson announced over the tannoy that this would be the last time that he would play the harp song at Tyne Castle. And I feel as emotional now about it as I did that day. And all the other fans in the stands saying, this can't happen to our club. Our club has an incredible history. Um, it is one of the bigger clubs in Scottish football, there's no doubt about that. And the thought of not having a heart of Midlothian football club in the Scottish League just doesn't bear thinking about for any club. Um, when we got home that evening, most of us had um, already heard about the Foundation of Hearts. I certainly looked into them and I got in touch with a few of the, the founder members and said, what can we do? Um, and at that point, prior to us going into administration, I think 4,000 of us had already signed up to say we will pledge on a monthly basis, what we can afford, when we can afford it. Obviously, when we went into administration, um, within a matter of weeks, over 8,000 Hearts fans had decided to pledge. I may add, there was Hibs fans within there as well. Um, Brian Jackson, as you all well know, was, uh, was fantastic in, in dealing with the administration process for us, which enabled us through many very difficult uh, conversations and meetings in Lithuania to, uh, to take over the club. That couldn't have happened without the contribution from the Foundation Hearts. 8,000 pledgers at that point, and we signed up to provide them £1.4 million in year one, £1.4 million in year two, which would go towards the working capital of the club to allow us to continue. Not an easy period, 15-point um, deduction for going into administration, Gary Locke working with kids, basically, because we had to let everyone else go. Um, but I tell you what, that was the start of it. That was the, that was the catalyst, because there was not a fan in the stand who wasn't behind this team and making sure that the club survived. Effectively, by providing the working capital to the club, um, obviously it allowed us to stabilise the finances um, and to ensure that there was going to then be an orderly transition towards supporter ownership. Bidco's sole purpose is to deliver fan ownership, and it will therefore not seek to make any personal gain through the process. There is not one person that could possibly say that that isn't the case when it comes to Anne Budge. What she has done for our club in such a short period of time is nothing short of astounding. Um, and she has supported the foundation throughout. Indeed, in the first two, the, the five-year plan that was set up in the first two years, we were paying working capital to the club, and then that would flip over to then start paying Bidco 1874 to work towards the fan ownership route. However, as you will well be aware, our main stand was not fit for purpose. 
and therefore we had to do something about it. In fact, most of the town castle at that point wasn't fit for purpose because there had been no money invested in, in the stand uh, at all <laughs> or in the stadium. Um, and really, we were a club on its knees, there was no doubt about it. However, in my first board meeting, Anne came in and asked if we would change the agreement um, and if we could commit to providing the funds that the Foundation members pledge towards the Tynecastle Redevelopment Fund. Um, the Tynecastle Redevelopment wasn't just um, a new stand, it was everything. It was under the wheat field, it was under the concourses, it was providing better facilities, generally for, um, for conference use, for hospitality, so on and so forth, and generally just so the football club could actually run better. So we um, put the vote to our members and it came back, I think it was something like 98.8% in agreement and we would fund £3 million um, of the Tynecastle Redevelopment Fund, which I'm pleased to say we finalised back in May this year. Tesco. That's what we were going to be turned into. Tynecastle was going to be a Tesco, but instead we've now got a nice shiny new main stand, which I have to say is absolutely fantastic. Not finished by all means. Um, but my God, what a turnaround. Um, this was a club that wasn't going to survive. It should have had Cala Flats on it by now. Um, but we've got a lovely shiny new stand, um, which is great. Retail has improved. We've now got that in-house. Um, there's not much that's going wrong at the club at the moment. Um, but it's taken, it's taken time. Um, and obviously the, the plan will continue. And obviously, um, 18, Bidco 1874, in June this year, we started to repay the loan. Um, so the funds are no longer going into the working capital of the club. We are now on the, the very scary journey of fan ownership, um, which will be great. And should we, um, we should finalise that I think the last payment gets made in June 2020. To date, the foundation have ploughed in £7 million into the club. I think that's phenomenal for a club in Scotland. Um, our fans have uh, remained steadfast throughout absolutely right in terms of what the Well Society said with regards to what goes on the pitch. We had a bit of a turbulent time over the last few years, especially cup games with our closest rivals, where our pledges were. <laughs> but thankfully, most people realise this is a journey. And whilst we are there to watch the product of football, we also want to be there to watch the club and save our club. Okay, so that was Louise Strutt from Foundation of Hearts speaking at the summit from Saturday. Yeah. What were your, what were your thoughts? Yeah, it was really interesting to get that update on on how things are going at Foundation of Hearts. As we said um, before, the, we we heard that little clip. We've heard from the Foundation of Hearts before, and the journey has moved on. Um, they're they're now a year a year and a half closer to um, to concluding the deal than they were last time we we heard from them at the summit. Um, so June twenty twenty is the date that they're aiming for to to reach that point. And actually something that Louise talked about was that at that point in time, it will just be business as usual. It's a, it's a gradual transition. Um, she also talked about, you know, it's not going to be a, a situation where suddenly uh, the club is run by the fans. So she makes a quite a clear distinction between being fan-owned and being fan-run. Uh, she talks about it's not... Uh, Jimmy in Block G that's going to pick yes. the team. Yes. Um, I don't know if Jimmy in Block G is a real person, but uh, it sounded like, it, <laughs> it sounded well, like there's some characters. We all know a Jimmy from Block G. But yeah, the, the idea that it's going to be a professional, it is a professionally run football club now, and it will be after the after the takeover is concluded. Um, faces may change, um, but the principles in which they operate will not. Um, also, the, the numbers that they talk about in, at, at Hearts yeah. are pretty incredible. Yeah. 
I think because I think as, as, as you know the, the numbers that you mentioned there in the World Society are pretty impressive. Yeah. Actually, when you compare them to, I know they're a big. Um, you know, Try not to get myself in too much hot water. There, <laughs> Just carry on. <laughs> <laughs> if you're doing it, it means I'm not. <laughs> um, arguably a bigger club, or, or perhaps yeah. unarguably. But you know yeah. the, the the membership numbers are, are sort of attributed. Yeah, that's that's right. I, mean, I think. Um, I think Hearts have 16,000 season ticket holders, 8,000 members to of Foundation Hearts that are pledging on, on a monthly basis, which is incredible. But if you look at the percentages at, at Motherwell, they have 3,400 season ticket holders and 2,600 members okay. of the Well Society. Yeah, so, uh, so they're, they're a higher percentage, you know, lower numbers in, you know, in, in, total, in total numbers. Um, but the other the other kind of shift in in the Foundation of Hearts emphasis when talking about the numbers this year that I hadn't heard before is that they're focusing on the on the value of pledges that people are making rather than just you know the the numbers of pledgers that they have. Um, so they're looking to drive higher value pledges um, and uh, and what they're what they're finding is that you know the fans have remained steadfast throughout the process. Yes. You know, there's their people have continued have been contributing from day one and still are. They're still getting new people coming along, chipping into the fund, and uh, it's it's seen as a it's not a it's not a temporary project, uh, and actually they're trying to get people to pledge for life. Yes, Louise gave a lovely story, didn't she, about somebody that when the club was in financial difficulty at the time wanted to become a, a member, but didn't have the financial you know wherewithal to be able to do it. I think they were starting a business up at the time. In three years down the line, that that business has actually turned out to be yeah. quite successful, and he's given. What he would have given over the space of three yeah. years up front, which is you know a really lovely story. So it's just right. new people always coming into the fold. Yeah, I mean it really it kind of it hints that the people feel a sense of responsibility to, to play their part in what's happening at their club, uh, and and it was and it wasn't wasn't said in Louise's presentation, but I think that also implies that people feel that they ha- they were partly responsible for uh, the crisis that the club was in. Uh, and maybe people people feel a little bit guilty about having bought the the, the Romanov story, mm. uh, and got got so excited about you know the money that was being spent on transfer fees and wages and things. Well, actually, now if it's if 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 the club got into crisis and that could have happened when we were supporters, we've also got a responsibility to get the club out of it. Mm. Uh, and the fact that you know that somebody wasn't able to put in money two or three or four or five years ago, but they are now, it means well, I'm going to make up for lost time. Mm. And that's quite a powerful message in there. That just just how deeply Hearts fans feel uh, that campaign in, in their in their hearts. Mm. Yes, very much so. I mean, there was another couple of really lovely stories that Louise shared as well, wasn't there? So there was a, a great soundbite about the fact they used to be sponsored by yeah. Wonga, and now they're sponsored by Save the Children to kind of perfectly illustrate the kind of transition yeah. that they've gone through as yeah. a club, which is which is a really nice thing. Um, the work with Big Hearts, which um, which seems to be doing incredible work within, yeah. within the, the, the local area there yeah. um, and, and one of the things I've always really liked about Foundation of Hearts is they've, um, they've I mean I think it would be really interesting to do to find out some research on, on why people contribute because I'm sure people contribute first and foremost because they love their clubs mm-hmm. but Foundation of Hearts have done something quite different in, in how they've used their sort of benefits and reward mm-hmm. scheme and how when you get points and um, because they have their plot ceremonies, which Louise yeah. talked about, but they always say, they also had that third strip, which I really loved. Yeah. They had that really beautiful third strip a couple of seasons ago with all the names of the members, and I know other clubs around the world have done that as well. But it, it was just a really nice thing, and they wore it for the game against uh, Motherwell a couple of years back. And That's right. As we said, they didn't lose in that strip. Either. Yeah, yeah, they're still undefeated in that strip. About it. Yeah, yeah. So I said one. That's one of the things that came through uh, through the the afternoon or the, the morning session when we were here. 
hearing from each of the clubs is that the you know, Well Society and the Foundation of Hearts are very close to each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, they celebrate the fact that they're they're on the journey towards fan ownership. So when they play each other, uh, it's, it's a bit more than a normal game. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they, they, that's 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 a visible part of the match experience when those two teams meet. Yeah, very much so. Um, I think from a couple of years ago they had they had they called it the fan owned uh, sort of derby so to speak yeah. so they had that yeah. they had that in the program they made a big deal out of it and and they spoke promoted the Well Society and the Foundation of Hearts yeah. at, at the games um, and what I was really interested in was the year of celebration that they're planning for 2020 you know the yeah. pr- be interested to see what shape that takes as as, uh-huh. they, as that year approaches and the handover sort of uh, takes shape so well watch watch that space yeah. So next up, we have um, a presentation from Smizer, David Nicol and Colin Orr from Smizer, St. Mirren Independent Supporters Association, talking about the Trust's Road to Fan Ownership. Um, so my name is David Nicol, I'm on the, the Smizer, St. Mirren Independent Supporters Association board. Uh, I'm also on the St. Mirren Football Club board as the representative for the Supporters Trust. So th- this, this is just a very brief timeline of where we came from. Smizer was formed in about 2002, 2003. Um, the objective at that time, our, our owners, St. Had, had had kind of fallen in hard ways in the mid-90s, and the consortium bought them over. At that time, we were sitting with about two, two and a half million pounds worth of debt, and the board that had, the consortium that bought bought the club over sort of set, put an appeal out and said, if anybody can put £100,000 working capital into the club, they'll get a seat on the board. Smizer was formed kind of with that objective, broadly. Um, and, you know, and, and kind of for the next few years was contributing small amounts here and there and bit by bit getting a few shares, uh, but never never quite reached the £100,000 target. In 2007, the board uh, of the club agreed to sell Love Street in a deal to Tesco, which saw us move to a new um, fit-for-purpose stadium. It allowed us to clear the debt, allowed us to, to invest in the training facility. And so suddenly the club went from you know a £2.5 million worth of debt in a crumbling stadium to quite an attractive prospect. No debt, modern stadium, uh, with, with all the income streams that, that that provides. So the board decided at that point to put the club up for sale. And that actually created a real problem because up until up until about two thousand seven, Smizer was buying small bits of, you know, shareholding here and there. But when they realised the deal in two thousand seven, the board realised, okay, well we're going to sell up at some point, and we don't want to dilute our shareholding to the point where we don't have a majority to sell because it's only attractive if you can sell a majority. So they stopped selling shares to Smizer. So Smizer kind of went dormant for a period of time, and was a small group. And I'm sure a lot of the supporters trust in the room will. will We'll feel this has happened to their trust from time to time. It was a small group, probably of 50, 60, maybe 100 people, paying a small amount each month. So it was collecting a bit of revenue, but really it couldn't do much with it. By the time it, it, got, it got to sort of t- 2015, um, and St. Mirren at that point had kind of started, the board was really tired and wanted out, and we'd started in a kind of bit of a down, downward spiral. Things weren't going great, and we still we hadn't appointed Alex Ray by this point, so things that's how that's how bad things were. <laughs> things were only going to get worse. So, um, I, but we had we had a conversation. Actually, Colin and I had a conversation in a pub, and we were talking about it. Saying, God, you know, after we cleared the debt and the new stadium, and things all started looking good, but the board are tired and need out. And, and things aren't going great. 
So we had we we two of us joined Smizer kind of by coincidence actually at that point, although we'd known each other for a long time beforehand, and a couple of other people joined. And Smizer started working with uh, Gordon Scott, who was a former board member, uh, so wealthy businessman, uh, interests all over the world in property development and so on. And he had made a couple of attempts to buy the club, but wasn't willing to meet the asking price basically of, of the old board, um, and also wanted a kind of long-term plan. So we started working with him in early 2015, and then in, uh, in the, the summer of, of 2016, we agreed a structured deal to, to take majority ownership of the club, which I'll touch on in a second. But I think this, this, when the deal was agreed, uh, this was one of the highlights of Colin's life because uh, we came up on the ticker tape on Sky Sports News that uh, St Mirren Independent Supporters Association has agreed a deal to buy the, the majority shareholding. The deal to buy the club was a, was, uh, was a million pounds uh, share purchase. Um, that, so that's a million pounds basically that was going, that was going to the, the existing board that was going to buy their shares, which is a really tough thing because it's, it's, it's money that the, the fans are raising but it isn't going to the club. So it's a hard thing to sell. But one of, the, one of the things actually that was really useful about that was we worked with Supporters Direct um, and Nick Igo, and he produced a really great bit of work for us which, which told us, you're not mad, a million pounds is a fair valuation for the assets and the, the, the going concern that you're buying. So that, that kind of gave us the confidence to go on and, 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 and do the deal. The deal split roughly, Gordon Scott put up about two thirds of the money and Smizer put up about one third. Prior to, prior to buy the buds, Douglas Street Limited, which was the, the company formed by the, the, the old board, they also had a, a, agreements with other shareholders, which, which totaled 16%. So they had a majority shareholding. They had agreements with a few others, uh, totaling 16%. And Gordon had, had 8%. Smyzer had 3%. The deal that we, we did, the £1 million share purchase, saw Gordon take 50% plus one, and Smyzer take 29%. That was important for us because... Although Gordon remains majority shareholder at the moment and, and controls the club, we've got the, the over the 25% mark, which means we, we know that even if, if the deal fell apart tomorrow, we know that we could never end up in a sort of Romanov situation. We have, we have that fail-safe uh, built in. We, we paid our 380000 through a kind of staged payment, so we paid it up uh, over two years, and I'm pleased to say that in the summer... Uh, 2018 we paid our last payment to the old board so we now have no outstanding liabilities to the old board part of the part of the agreement we have here also is we've got a, a shareholders agreement in place between Gordon Scott and Smizer that shareholders agreement I'll touch on it for phase two it explains how phase two is going to happen what it also does is it guarantees us a place on the club board so the supporters association elects somebody onto the club board to represent us and also guarantees other things. Gordon can't change the name, he can't change the colours, he can't change the, he can't uh, sell the stadium, he can't borrow more than a certain amount uh, fixed against the assets. And you know this, the amount I think is something like a hundred thousand pounds or something. Something nominal that would be, you know, if you needed to borrow something for a project, you, you could still do that. But he can't end up borrowing millions. So we have a, a shareholders agreement which which kind of protects us between phase one and phase two. Phase two then. We paid Gordon 620,000, <clears> which is say that's the amount he paid at the start. That's the amount we'll pay him, but we'll pay it in summer of 2026, where we will take over the majority shareholding. In fact, we'll take up to 71%. Gordon retains the 8% that he brought in. Uh, we agree, you know, it was a <laughs> sticky negotiation point because he was quite keen to sell the whole lot, and we said, <laughs> well, you had that when you came in, and we're not <laughs> we're not buying that off you because we don't need it unless we wanted to get to the 75%. 
But I think at that point we were sort of saying 620,000 is a, a big enough target, never mind raising more than, than, than he'd put in. So to talk a little bit about our membership, so as I said, £10 goes to the buying shares and £2 membership fee allows, uh, we vote in a, what we call the member discretionary fund or the quarterly pot or whatever you want to call it, but each quarter members vote on that. There's usually about eight, £9,000 a quarter um, and each, the, the members vote on how they want to use it. So some of the things we've done, we, we did a community season ticket uh, purchase, so we bought a block of about 25 season tickets and every single home game we give them to a different group in the community um, and it's been really really well received and lo loads of people uh, you know apply and say oh and it's, it's dead straightforward we get them at a discount from the club and it's a really great way to engage uh, engage the community but one of the i think the very first thing we did was was, was build this viewing platform this is at the back of our main stand it's a, a viewing platform to allow uh, fans who are in wheelchairs a better view of the of the game you know, for, for the people in wheelchairs, very often they're put down at the side of the pitch in those little kind of bus shelter things. Um, they're kind of exposed to the elements. They've not got a great view. So this was something that had been planned for a while, um, and, uh, and we're really pleased to be able to, to, to help uh, get that installed. And it's actually uh, it's, it's the best view you get at the stadium. So it's, it's a really great, it's a great, uh, a great project that we were able to support. We did have one guilty moment where we put it into the transfer budget. <laughs> um, this was this was in January January two thousand and seventeen, uh, where we uh, we put ten thousand pounds into the transfer, which was you know roughly enough to pay for uh, a player or a player and a half for uh, to the end of the season. Um, that was at the point we were adrift at the bottom of the championship and and Alan is rolling his eyes there because I think the, the main benefactors of that were St Mirren and the main losers out of that were probably Wraith Rovers. So apologies about that, Alan. It's not something we want to make a habit of. It, we, we felt at that time it was worth doing because a number of things were at risk if we'd been relegated. Obviously employment for some of the people at the club, club's community projects would have been at risk. Loads, loads of things and we thought we've just signed a deal to buy this club and it's suddenly the value of it is about to plummet. So we felt that if we could have helped in a small way, that, that was a, that if there was a time to do it, that was it. Uh, but generally speaking, we wouldn't, we wouldn't, uh, we wouldn't put money into the, the transfer budget or the wage budget. Uh, this, this year, uh, St Mirren Women's Football Club was set up, uh, so we, we've become their main shirt sponsor and we've also helped them out with some equipment and league registration fees and so on, so we've, we've helped them get started. We've got an initiative at a club called Grow Your Club, which is uh, in conjunction with one of the other supporters groups and the supporters liaison officers. We're putting on pre-match entertainment for kids, so it's face painting, balloons, uh, balloon animals, um, bouncy castles, live music, all this kind of stuff. And it's really, it's great. So it, it wasn't a huge amount of money, it was a couple of thousand pounds uh, for the season. And it's, it's great that you see, you know, hundreds of kids coming along and, can, um, and, and enjoying, enjoying football. And, uh, and hopefully they then go on to become sort of lifelong St Mirren fans. And then just in the, the, the last couple of months, we've agreed to put £50,000 towards uh, relaying the AstroTurf at the Youth Academy. Um, that's, uh, it, so it's, the club's putting up the rest of the money, but um, Smyza is, is supporting that now as the um, title sponsor of the Youth Academy. Uh, so those projects and, and some of the other things we've done, uh, at a total we've put in about £100,000 over the past two years into the club. And, and these are things that probably wouldn't have happened without the support of our members. So that, that, that kind of touches on how we use that quarterly fund. It's not a huge amount of money, but it's, it's just a couple of nice-to-have things that the club otherwise just wouldn't be able to do.
So there we go. That was David Nichol and Colin Orr of Smizer talking about their Buy the Buds campaign from a couple of years ago. Uh, what do you think? What are your takeaways from that, Alan? Um, I really, the biggest thing that struck me was the um, the fact that they're using this 10-year journey that they're on as an opportunity to learn. Uh, so David's coming to the, the end of his first uh, his two-year term as the first supporters rep on the board of the club. Uh, and he said he's going to stand down from that role um, and he sees it as, as a really valuable thing that uh, in, in these 10 years, you know, a number of people can get real hands-on experience of being on the board, of, of seeing what's involved in running a football club. So when they get to the end, when they've raised the money that they need to, to you know, buy the shares uh, and to own, I think, 71% of the yeah. of the club as their, as their target, um, they'll have a, a small group of people all with deep experience of what it takes to, to be involved in running the football club. So that's kind of a, it's a long journey that, that that they're on. I mean, that's it's probably the longest project of of the three that we spoke to there, uh, that is lasting for ten years. Uh, and I think the thing that they're they're needing they need to guard against as they're going through that. And they talked about this was fan fatigue. This idea that uh, ten years it's uh, it's such a long time that people will either drift away and stop contributing, uh, their numbers will tail off, and also the sense that they they're not in crisis. Yeah. Um, so people just kind of drift away and, and stop paying attention to it. Yeah, I think that, get, that sort of goes back to that research, doesn't it? So finding out the motivations and and as a, at what point would somebody stop funding that? You know? Yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting. That I'd be really keen to find that out. Those kind of motivations for why people are funding them. Yeah. Yeah, um, but they say that the drop off so far has been lower than they expected. Yes. So they were preparing for something like ten, fifteen percent uh, of kind of turnover of of pledgers of contributors per year, um, but that's not happened. Uh, I mean, it's been a t- it's been a drop off of maybe six percent, which is a lot less than they were led to led to expect. So they must be doing something very positive to keep people well, engaged. Yeah, very much so. And in that time, they've also been able to pay off the previous owners as well, which is yeah. which is great because I know that was one of that was something that David touched upon in the presentation was um, you know that was a kind of key concern was being yeah. able to pay off the previous uh, the previous shareholders so yeah um, that was that was really interesting one of the, one of the things that I really like they went for a kind of list of pros and cons of the model they've set up and hmm. one of the pros being that they've got eight years to learn how the clubs run yeah so that yeah. was one of the pros of having a, a deal structured as they do is uh, I think somebody said, "Why wouldn't you just buy the club outright?" And uh-huh. the response was, "Well, we don't really know anything about running a club, yeah. which nobody does today. Yeah. No one, yeah. no one knows how to run a club until yeah. they do it." Lots so of people just, running clubs don't know how to run a club, <laughs> <laughs> as, is, uh, as is as is apparent. But um, yeah, that was really interesting. I found that quite uh, you know to turn that into a kind of a, uh-huh. a positive. Actually, you've That's got right. eight years to set up the mechanism, make sure it all works as a as a structure, and, yeah. and just learn everything you can until you you've got the keys. And That's right. In charge. And they're able to do some very positive work in the meantime. Mm-hmm. Um, they talked about the um, the membership fee structure that they have, where uh, on a, on a monthly basis people contribute twelve pounds. Ten pounds of that goes to the fund that's going to buy the shareholding, and two pounds goes into a discretionary fund. They, they give it a couple of different names, mm-hmm. um, but it's really a fund that can be used, and they spend it quarterly, uh, and they give people a choice of what that money spent on, uh, and they gave you know half a dozen examples of things that they've chosen to um, to invest in. You know, the very first one that they did was uh, improved um, improved uh, spectator facilities for disabled supporters yeah. as the first thing that they did, which is very, very visible, noticeable. It's a different kind of viewing uh, area for, and I think particularly this is for uh, for wheelchair 
uh, users mm. is that they're on a platform at the back of the main stand so they're above the rest of the fans looking across they've got a great view the best view in the stadium uh, rather than being pitch side or under a little shelter uh, with a restricted view or with 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 you know with the elements blowing in to their to their faces so a big significant thing that they were able to do we've had David Nickel on the podcast you know, right in our in our early days one of our first episodes mm. where he talked about that and just the, the sense of pride that it gives supporters to be able to say well we did that mm. um, and they've been going for a, for a couple of years now so there's been you know a, quite a number of different projects that they've helped to fund that way incredibly powerful for pe- keeping people engaged for people to see that it makes a difference not everyone is as is as focused and uh, and has such tunnel vision about supporter ownership as as the people that get involved in supporter trusts and supporter associations. Um, but this al- this allows you to do more than just buy shares. So it's, it's it grabs attention, keeps people engaged, and and you get a sense that you're doing some good. Yeah, I think as you say, I I think he said something like a hundred grand they've spent on community initiatives since they sat that pot, which is yeah. quite a sum of money to Absolutely. be putting into the local area. Yeah. And it's, it's great because it also, um, when supporters trust set up, you know, all, the whole thing is about bridging the gap between the community and the club. But in reality, that can be quite hard to do for a supporters trust. Yeah. Something like that actually makes it tangible and, and other people can see yeah. the very visible difference that the trust yeah. are making. So it's not just about buying shares, which are kind yeah. of invisible. Not, the shares don't actually That's exist. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, but actually funding, as you say, the disability access area and, yeah. and, and things outside the club as well. Yeah. So the community programs they run within the, within yeah. the area. Um, uh, and it's probably si- time to sound the Wraith Rovers clacks and I get to mention Wraith Rovers as I do most episodes. <laughs> so one of the things that was quite con- controversial and the, in, were the choices they made so uh in the january transfer window last season yeah last season it seems a long time ago um the season before last uh that's that's right um they contributed to the playing budget um and were able to to help their manager at the time make some signings that got them off the bottom of the table uh and uh you know it it the end result of that was Wraith Rovers fans weren't very happy because we ended up going down uh, behind St Mirren uh, that season. It wasn't all St Mirren's doing, so I can't blame them for everything. There's if you want a list of, of culprits and people to blame, um, St Mirren are quite far down the list, <laughs> but it didn't help. <laughs> yeah, so they they but they as and and they talked about that being a difficult decision uh, and people who are more purists on you know supporter ownership mm-hmm. uh, and said well that's not actually how we should be spending our money uh, on a sh- on a short term uh, goal like that yeah but in the end they were they're all football fans so that was what won the vote uh, and that's democracy for you well, uh, yes. if you don't if you don't like the answer encourage people to get out in there and vote for for the answer that you do believe in i think that's that's a very fair point i'd also say that I would I would also tend to agree that perhaps that's not the purpose of the trust is to help fund the players but what I would argue is that they they then had at that time had a, an obligation to buy that asset as a club uh-huh. and that, that the, the, the price of that was fixed over the 10 years so yeah. it didn't really matter which division they were in you that's don't want right. to be taking on a club that's in the bottom, yeah. the bottom division and it's not going to be worth what you, what right. you agreed to pay for it that's so right. they're also looking out for their asset which I think is yeah. is sensible so yeah really interesting um what about the what were the kind of uh, themes that you noticed throughout the presentations that you could kind of look at and see the similarities and, and what other clubs could learn from? Well, I guess the biggest thing was that 
there was a very open, a, a, a great degree of openness between the three groups. Um, and I observed it, I think, in the in one of the clips that were recorded during the day. I talked about uh, the fact that they, they're collaborating rather than competing. So they're football clubs, they're rivals, but only on the pitch. Uh, there's more that they can learn from each other um, than, uh, than they need to compete on. So that was a that was a big theme of it. Um, it was they were very kind of open about why they chose the model that they chose and the timescales that they chose and and the, their way of engaging with the current owners. Uh, and there's there's a different model that's right for every club where where supporter support ownership is a, is an option. Different ways to get in there, different speeds that you can go at, and different things you can incorporate along the process. And they seem each of the three clubs seem to have chosen a model that's working well for them. Mm. Um, so it's it's very it would be very easy for us to say well this is best practice and this is how you should do it but I think we have to uh, hold our hands up and say well actually in reality different things work in different places oh, um, and and it's about finding something that that you can sell to your members that that's going to get their attention that's going to keep them on the hook for a period of years rather than being you know this year or this or, or this month's you know hot topic and, and hot priority. Mm. So they, so each of them have managed to do that, and each have, have, have managed to kind of sustain the energy and attention and focus, mm. which is very good. Yeah, one thing I sort of was quite interested in was comparing and contrasting the, the governance structures at each of the clubs, mm -hmm. and considering they were all at different places on their journeys, what was what was similar and what was different, and I and I don't know if you can ever get the kind of pinnacle of governance because yeah. I think it's just one of these things yeah. that could it's always evolving it could always be better there could always be yeah. checks and balances but it was really interesting they all had uh, representation on the club board uh -huh. which you would expect from other worlds they own the club but the other two also had um, representatives on the club board that's right um, Hearts had two for example which was uh -huh. quite interesting so that that was quite interesting to compare them and I know there would be other clubs in the room that were kind of thinking I'm not sure what can we yeah. learn how can we can borrow and add bits from other, yeah. other people that's there. right um and and, bo and both Hearts and St Mirren are looking. They, they they have their current governance structure while they're in while they're in the midst of the deal. But they're also both looking at what the eventual structure that they need once they finally um, take over and, yes. and and own the clubs. What their governance structure needs to be uh, needs to look like. I mean, Hearts talked about theirs is out for consultation just now, and I think in the next couple of months they'll be publishing the sort of the their findings their outcomes of yeah. what it's going to look like yeah. so that's going to it's a big big piece of work that they've done they've gone into a lot of detail um, they're spending a lot of time and energy on that to, to make sure that they, they get it right so I think that's a, a very positive thing that they're doing I mean they're less than two years away from that destination so they really need to be thinking about it just now but St Mirren talked about that and they said well yeah absolutely we need to get that right as well yeah. we may have eight years to go but it's never too early to start thinking about how you want, want to be structured because it influences a lot of the decisions that you take that seem to be unrelated. So they talked about, uh, you know, the the detail, the, the right down in the weeds of the sort of the admin systems that they have. They talked about just simply, um, you know, payment systems that aren't all compatible with with everything else that you use. So you need to actually, you know, to really look at the detail of, of every aspect of your your structure, the way that you operate, the way that you do your your admin, and get it all tied together. Otherwise, it's going to give you headaches further down the line. Mm, absolutely. Well, we spoke to, after the presentations, we spoke to um, representatives from each of the three supporters groups and just got some sort of afterthoughts from them. So here is a, a, a compilation of those views and as to the sort of benefits of the supporters summit and having 
events like that. Um, here you go. Here is Louise Strout from Foundation of Hearts, David Nickel from Smizer, Colin Orr from Smizer, uh, Maureen Kirkwood from the Well Society, and Douglas Dick- Dickey from the Well Society as well. It's uh, disappointing when you see the number of people who express their views on social media nowadays about how football um, is in Scotland generally, um, whether it be at international level or club level. And here is the ideal forum for them to, to express their views. Um, so I think they're, you know, the, these forums are incredibly important, I think, for fans to come along, listen to what other clubs are doing, um, listen to how they're trying to develop their clubs um, from grassroots up. It's a great opportunity to share the issues that we're having, the challenges we're having, and some of the successes as well. It's a great, a great place to share ideas. Some of the some of our best uh, community engagement projects have come out of events like this, uh, where we talk to some other clubs and find out what they're doing. We kind of poach their ideas and then we, 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 we tweak them so that they work for for our uh, situation. But it's a great it's just a great place to share information to share ideas. You know we're all on this journey. We're all doing it in our own way. And what what was amazing today about speaking to the, to the people from Hearts and, and from Motherwell is is to see that a lot of the the opportunities and, and the challenges that we've experienced were, were, were the same for them and, and we maybe all came at it from different angles and sets of circumstances but the, the, the number of, um, of commonalities is, is huge and I think it's fan ownership is only going to become more important in future I think more and more clubs are going to embrace it as a way to run and um, I think it, it, it fits that model that, that we do all come together and we share knowledge and we work together and, and help each other out. To be honest, this is the first SDS summit I've been at. I find it really beneficial in terms of listening to everybody, listening to everybody's journeys, and, and I think you would agree, a lot of commonality there, and, and we can all share. In fact, the Foundation of Hearts, we have done various initiatives with them, and, and I think we're all here to share. We're happy to share, and hopefully it's vice versa. Okay, so there we go. There were the thoughts of our speakers from the uh, from the Supporters Summit, just sort of summing up the benefits of having events like these and bringing fans together to share their views on, on supporter ownership and the future of fan ownership in Scotland. Overall, it seems like it's heading in a good place. We're going to have more clubs and community ownership, and yeah. uh, there was a good chat about what the kind of barriers were as well, weren't there? That's right, that's right. I, I think people seeing these real examples of, of, it, in, of it being done in practice... Um, can be maybe just a thing that says, well, actually, this might be possible for us. Um, one of the things that uh, in the, in the conversation with the with the three organisations during the day, uh, I asked, asked them a question about. So, what do other clubs think about this? And do you notice any any response to that? And it was actually David Nickel from St Mirren. He he was the one that said, actually, there's two or three clubs that are really really interested in this, and it's the clubs that are interested in the idea of supporter ownership. Uh, and that's I guess for football clubs, if they see three clubs in the top division operating successfully wherever they are in the division, um, uh, they, but they say that it's possible there, they think, well, actually, maybe this could be possible here. Mm-hmm. And it actually just shows that maybe traditional owners of football clubs aren't such a different breed from, from supporters after all. They say they're just waiting to see this work. Uh, and that's really all that, 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 that people are really waiting uh, for to, in order to, to embrace this themselves. Yeah, very much so. And, and overall, it seemed like it was only ever going to become a greater number of clubs in community ownership didn't yeah. it? Um, so we'll leave this hopefully you've enjoyed a 
kind of quick summary, a quick roundup from the supporters mm-hmm. summit this year. Uh, if anything, it will be a reminder that you need to attend in person next year, <laughs> uh, so you don't miss out in person. Uh, but we're going to leave you with the thoughts of our very own Alan Russell, who spoke to our compere. Uh, Chris Kane after the summit and just summarise some of the views. So thank you very much for listening and we'll speak to you next week. Alan, how important is it to get people out of boardrooms, out of terraces and into rooms like this to share experiences and ideas? Well, obviously we've got less uh, thrills and spills than watching a, a match on a Saturday afternoon, um, but there's a lot of, sort of really lively content here, like lively discussion and, and a lot of things to learn. And I think we've got the real advantage now that we've got fans who have been in the boardroom as well and uh, have crossed that, that kind of divide. Uh, and uh, I've got experience sitting, watching the, watching the football, enjoying it. Uh, experience organising supporters and also experience uh, in the boardrooms of the clubs running the clubs so that's a it's a great time uh, at the moment to be involved in support uh, the support movement in Scottish football I'm a, a, a Stirling man so I saw Stirling Albion way back in the early days embarking this journey uh, and one of the questions that I noticed from the floor was why is it still there's a resistance at top levels to fan ownership now without getting into the details of whether the question was right it's a bit surprising to me that here we are so many years down the line and it's still seems to be that we're pushing a door a little bit and finding a bit of resistance Well I think that resistance maybe comes from not not having seen it work Um, and I think people are, it's natural that people are sceptical to new ideas until they've seen them work Uh, and and I guess it's only really now that we're seeing clubs under support ownership in the top division and people are really seeing well this is possible at every level of Scottish football it's sometimes been maybe dismissed as something that's only suitable for weak teams in the in the past no disrespect to Sterling Albion um, but it's seen as something that will work at that level and that's absolutely fine but you know it's something different at the top of the game I think also um, there's a recognition in Scottish football that we we are different than football south of the border where the big money's in the big uh, broadcasting contracts the massive transfer fees and wages and actually you know, it's an opportunity for Scottish football to, to differentiate itself, itself a little bit, saying, OK, so we're not, we're not going to try and compete with at that level, but we can do things, do things differently at ourself, for ourselves. Behind the Goals is a Supporters Direct Scotland podcast. You can get in touch with the show by emailing behindthegoals at hotmail.com or you can also tweet the show at SupDirectScott. That's S-U-P-P Direct Scott.